0: The winner and still heavyweight champion of the
1: world, the of all time, of all time. I'ma keep cause the winner don't quit on themselves.
2: He called himself the greatest and then proved it to the entire world. He was a master at what is called the sweet science, the brutal and sometimes beautiful art of boxing. Heavyweight champion at just 22 years old, he wrote his own rules in the ring and in his life, infuriating his critics, baffling his opponents and riveting millions of fans. At the height of the civil rights movement, he joined a separatist religious sect whose leader would for a time dominate both his personal life and his boxing career. He spoke his mind and stood on principle even when it cost him his livelihood. He redefined black manhood yet belittled his greatest rival using the racist language of the Jim Crow South in which he had been raised. Banished for his beliefs, he returned to boxing an underdog, reclaimed his title twice, and became the most famous man on earth. He craved adulation his whole life, seeking crowds on street corners, in hotel lobbies, on airport tarmacs, everywhere he went, and reveled in the uninhibited joy he brought each adoring fan. He earned a massive fortune, spent it freely, and gave generously to family, friends, even strangers, anyone in need. Service to others, he often said, is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. Even after his body began to betray him and his brain had absorbed too many blows, he fought on, unable to go without the attention and drama that accompanied each bout. Later, slowed and silenced by a cruel and crippling disease, he found refuge in his faith, becoming a symbol of peace and hope on every continent. Muhammad Ali was, the novelist Norman Mailer wrote, the very spirit of the 20th century.
0: I'm always going to be one black one who got big on your white televisions, on your white newspapers, on your time lights, million dollar tents, and still look you in your face and tell you the truth and 100% stay with, and represent my people and not leave them and sell them out because I'm rich and stay with them. That was my purpose. I'm here and I'm showing sure the world that you can be here
3: and still free and stay yourself and get respect in the world.
2: Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. at Louisville City Hospital on January 17, 1942.
4: We weighed about six pounds, one ounce, so I wouldn't call that Very a large baby. He learned to talk before he was one year old, and he's always been a great
2: talker. His parents, Odessa Grady Clay and Cassius Marcellus Clay Sr., had married in 1941 and bought a tiny house at 3302 Grand Avenue in Louisville's West End, a black neighborhood that was home to working and middle-class families.
4: The West End had everything. We had our banks, we had our entrepreneurs, we had our newspaper. It was a community in which we were safe. I don't have a recollection of when I first met the Clay's. It's almost as if you always knew them. Mrs. Clay, she loved everybody in the neighborhood. I mean, she was one of the ones that if anything happened, you always knew that you could run over there.
2: Odessa cooked and cleaned for white families and attended Mount Zion Baptist Church every Sunday.
4: Mama Bird, my grandmother, was very sweet, very quiet, and very pleasant, never spoke badly about anybody, very positive, spiritual woman, so outgoing and loving.
1: She was kind, and she was just sincere. And my dad truly received his gentleness and his kindness from his mom, Mama Bird.
2: Young Cassius never sat still. He pulled the pots and pans from the cupboard to bang on them chased the family's pet chicken around the yard, and stood up in his stroller to get a better view.
1: Even as a young boy, he just had this huge personality. and He was always laughing and smiling, always making other people laugh. My grandmother, she was like, this, this boy is going to be something special.
2: <laughs> Eighteen months after Cassius was born, Odessa gave birth to a second son, whom they named after the silent film star, Rudolph Valentino. Cassius and Rudy were exceptionally close. When his brother misbehaved, Cassius would insist that Rudy was his baby and refused to let their father spank him. Cassius Clay Senior, an artist who earned a living as a sign painter and muralist, had been named for a fiery 19th century white abolitionist. He loved to be noticed, often quoted from the Bible, and railed against racial injustice. Cash, as he was called, was a miniature volcano of a man. One observer said, boisterous and cocky.
1: Cash was charismatic. He was funny. He had the biggest personality. He lit up a room when he walked in. Everyone just wanted to talk to him. Everyone wanted to know him.
3: My father could sing, dance, paint, draw, memorize poetry. My brother got his talent from my father.
1: My dad, he's certainly a combination of Mama Bird and Papa Cash, for sure. But his charisma definitely came from Papa Cash.
5: His father was a race man, and he believed that his career, and like so many others, was held back by the color of his skin. And he believed that, that he was a brilliant painter, an artist, but he was relegated to painting signs in front of stores and painting church murals and scraping to make a living because he didn't have the same kind of opportunity that white painter might have had.
2: Papa Cash was also an unrepentant womanizer who could be violent when drunk. He was arrested
5: regularly for disorderly conduct and reckless driving. And he occasionally hit his wife and uh, there were police involved at times when she had to call to protect herself. And I think it for for the boys growing up, for, for Cassius and for Rudy, it was a frightening environment at times to see their mother being threatened. And as they got older, they would step in and try to put a stop to it. After one incident,
2: police arrived at the Clay home to find young Cassius with a bloody gash on his leg. His father had cut him with a knife when he tried to protect his mother during an argument between his parents. The officers did nothing. Despite the violence, Cassius and Rudy would speak of their home life as peaceful and happy.
4: My father, coming up in the segregated South in Louisville, Kentucky, had a difficult time. Mama Bird taught him, you know, people are cruel in this world, but you never, 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 you know, become that.
2: The Louisville of Cassius Clay's youth was strictly segregated and opportunities for African-Americans were limited. He attended all black schools, could not eat at the lunch counters of downtown stores, and watched from the other side of the fence as white families enjoyed a nearby amusement park.
5: Young Cassius Clay was aware very early of the differences between black and white and how differently he and his family were treated and would ask his father, why can't I be rich? And his father would just point to the color of his skin and say, that's why you can't be rich. In
2: 1955, News of the brutal torture and murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till by white men in Mississippi and graphic images in Jet Magazine of his mutilated face haunted Cassius Clay, who was just six months younger than Till.
4: That really affected my father, like a lot of people at that time. He saw himself in Emmett Till and thought, wow, this outgoing kid from the city and he came and he whistled a pretty lady and now he's dead and you can't even recognize his face.
6: It was astonishing when
0: we found out about Emmett Till. His mother said leave the casket open and you could see what how they brutalized him. And so everybody saw that. It was really kind of scary for everybody in the community because if they could do that to him, what could they do to us? That's when young black guys started to change.
2: At the Virginia Avenue Colored School, Cassius Clay had a hard time paying attention.
5: He struggled with his classes. He struggled to read. He struggled yes. with math. He was most certainly dyslexic. He found, like a lot of people who have trouble in school, that he had to compensate. And like being the class clown was the way he did that. He would carry a purse to school. He wore lipstick one day to get laughs. He was willing to do things that boys in the 1950s didn't often do. Even as a young man, people just loved to be around him. He made them feel good about themselves.
2: One day in October of 1954, 12-year-old Cassius rode his bicycle into downtown Louisville while Rudy sat on the handlebars. It began to rain, and the boys took cover in the Columbia Auditorium, where a home appliance show was underway. After the
5: rain stopped, they emerged to find that the bicycle was gone. He had a brand new Schwinn, a beautiful red bicycle that uh, he shared with his brother. And he went running around looking for his bicycle and then ran back into the community center asking for help. Someone told him there was a police officer in the basement.
3: He went down, and the cop in the basement was this Joe Martin who was running
5: a little boxing school. Cassius told the story years later that for a minute he forgot about his bike because the site of this boxing gym, the smell of the leather and the sweat and the excitement, the action of boys in, in a ring
3: hitting each other, black and white together. And he you know, reported the crime, I'm going to get the guy, and I'm going to you know, kill him. Joe Martin said, well, do you know how to fight? Fight? And that was the beginning.
2: Though his father was reluctant to let his son train with a white police officer, the lessons were free and Cassius was eager to learn. At first, the young boxer did not impress Martin. He was just ordinary, the trainer recalled, and I doubt whether
5: any scout would have thought much of him. Cassius didn't show any special talent right away, but he showed enormous passion. He knew instantly that this was what he wanted to do. Boxing was perfect for him because there's just two guys in the ring and your eye is always going to be drawn naturally to the one who's doing the most moving, who's doing the most punching, who's moving the fastest. And that was him, and he knew that he could get the most attention that way.
2: Just six weeks after he walked into Joe Martin's gym, Cassius Clay had his first amateur fight.
6: I, at that time, was putting on a local television show here in Louisville, and I had uh, amateur bouts every Saturday afternoon. The first bout I put him in, he
3: weighed 87 pounds.
2: After defeating 14-year-old Ronnie O'Keefe in a split decision, Clay immediately announced to everyone, that one day he would be called the greatest of all time.
0: He thought I'd been a little bragging. I'm
6: yeah. the greatest and all that before he even got to be the greatest. We'd say, oh, shut up, this is right in your mouth.
5: But as he got better and better, we have more respect for him. He believes in himself before there's any reason to, before anyone else is telling him that he might even have talent. It's so preposterous.
2: Cassius threw himself into training, determined to add muscle to his slender frame. He stopped drinking soda pop and substituted garlic water, which he believed would keep his blood pressure down.
7: this Clay of Louisville in the trunk with the white stripe, beat Jefferson Davis of Mobile, Alabama.
2: Clay realized early that he was unusually quick and agile, able to avoid punches by leaning back rather than ducking or slipping side to side as boxers were instructed to do. Yes. And Casey's play, the winner over Jefferson Davis. Some nights, Clay went from Martin's gym to the Grace Community Center across town where he continued his boxing education under Fred Stoner, a veteran trainer who had guided many local amateurs to success at the Golden Gloves. Away from the gym, he sought boxing wisdom wherever he could find it. When the well-known trainer Angelo Dundee came to town, Cassius peppered him with questions. Dundee was impressed by the teenager's determination and ambition.
5: They wanted to find out how fighters trained, the business about uh, diet and everything else. And he was very, very curious at that time.
2: Before each fight, Cassius Clay would go door to door across Louisville, introducing himself to white and black residents alike. His strategy was to sell tickets. Any way I could entertain and sell tickets, this is what I'm going to do. That's what what he did. He did a real good job at that. Clay was often absent from high school, competing in amateur tournaments. When he did attend class, he sketched boxing gloves and leather jackets stitched with National Golden Gloves champion in his notebook, and offered to sign autographs for his classmates. Bet my classmates that I
6: would beat them to school. They would ride the bus.
3: He would run uh, Chester Street with the local transit bus just to get his self-conditioned, and then run from Chester Street to way over to Broadway and come back. And he would sometimes stop, look to see the ladies in there, or whatever, or something like that, and keep on running. Bus might get a block or two lead on it. I would always catch up to
0: it and stop for passengers or stop for a red or a light or something.
3: It was funny. It was really funny you wave, wave, I going on? He's a strange
2: person. Why is he running with us? In February of 1958, a month after his 16th birthday, Clay traveled with Joe Martin and a group of Louisville hopefuls to Chicago for the Golden Gloves Tournament of Champions. It was his first national competition. He lost in the quarterfinals. One year later, taller and heavier, He made it to the tournament finals, where he defeated 29-year-old Australian-born Tony Madigan, a two-time Olympian who was favored to win. The decision was unanimous. I couldn't stick it, Madigan said. He would always just pull out of range, sort of vanish into thin air. Cassius Clay was now the Golden Gloves light heavyweight champion. A win at the National Olympic Trials in San Francisco would earn him a spot on the team headed for the 1960 Rome Olympics. But there was a problem. He was afraid of flying. So afraid that he considered turning professional rather than compete for
5: a chance to go to Italy. He hated flying. He was scared to death of airplanes. He actually flew to the Olympic Trials with a parachute that he bought in an Army Navy star that he wore on the plane.
2: At the Cow Palace in San Francisco, Clay defeated his first two opponents convincingly and advanced to the finals, where he faced Alan Hudson, an army veteran and more experienced fighter. In the 178-pound class, another Louisville boy his play
6: in the dark front and pitted against the all-army champion Alan Hudson.
2: In the third round, Hudson sent Clay to the canvas.
6: Cases is up almost immediately, and after a check by the ref, he's back in action. Clay's chance to go to work. He waves into Hudson and sends them reeling into the corner. Hudson is really groggy and just about out on his feet.
2: The referee awarded Clay a technical knockout. He had earned a spot on the United States Olympic team. After the trials, Clay pawned a watch he'd won in the tournament and bought a train ticket home so he wouldn't have to fly. His graduation from Central High School was now just weeks away. He'd missed so many days and had such poor grades that many of his teachers felt Clay did not deserve a diploma. His principal disagreed. The only thing Cassius is going to have to read is his IRS form, he said, and I'm willing to help him do it. On his way to the Olympics in Rome, Cassius Clay first stopped in New York, where he hoped to meet his idol, former middleweight champion Sugar Ray Robinson, whom many believe, the greatest pound-for-pound fighter in boxing history, known as much for his flashy style as for his prowess in the ring. While Clay waited outside Robinson's Harlem restaurant, hoping for a moment with his hero, he noticed a small crowd gathered around a well-dressed orator who was calling upon black people to shop only at black-owned businesses. The man belonged to a group called the Nation of Islam, How can he talk like that? Clay wondered. Ain't he going to get in trouble? When Sugar Ray finally pulled up in a purple Lincoln Continental, he had little time for his young admirer. hurriedly signing a photograph for Clay and wishing him luck. At first, Clay was awestruck. That Sugar Ray, he's something, he raved. Someday I'm going to own two Cadillacs and a Ford for just getting around it. But later, he remembered, he felt snubbed. If I ever get great and famous and people want my autograph enough to wait all day, he said, I'm sure going to treat them different. Then he nervously flew to Rome.
1: Islands
0: just have a special spiritual energy. That is Hell cool. the storm, where we go on. While we
7: go on So speak of
0: the days Ages to come We drove the beast Into the sun God by our side Answer the call Where we go on There we go, one, one, we go all. There's no doubt about it. <clears throat>
5: exciting in a lot of ways. The American team was led by Rayford Johnson. It was a very exciting time to be an Olympian. For Cassius, who really never traveled very far, this was really an eye-opener to see the world and to see people who spoke different languages. And he instantly became the mayor of the Olympic Village. He was not famous yet in any way, but his magnetism just was amazing, and, and you see instantly reporters and other athletes saying, Who is this guy? We need to talk to him, and just clusters forming around him wherever he went.
2: Clay reveled in all the attention. He met Bing Crosby, flirted with the sprinter Wilma Rudolph, and posed for photographs with the current heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson. Be seeing you in about two more years, he said. This kid is irresistible, wrote one reporter he even made friends with the russians
5: the olympic athlete with the noblest roman name of them all is cassius marcellus clay actually cassius is no roman at all however he's actually an 18 year old light heavyweight who makes his home on grand street in louisville kentucky and he may very well become an olympic champion cassius clay He's america's light heavyweight no one outside the states has ever heard of him. clay beats a belgian a russian and an australian and now, he's in the final.
2: His opponent for the gold medal would be Zigzi Pietrzykowski from Poland, who'd won Olympic bronze four years earlier.
6: The Pole is 25. He's been unbeaten champion of Europe
2: for five years. For two rounds, the men measured each other.
7: Play a rather deceptive, casual way of throwing punches, and he punches very hard.
2: In the third and final round, Clay took command.
6: Oh, good shot by Clay then. Looks like Gedrykowski is bleeding from the mouth a bit. Gedrykowski now definitely bleeding at the nose and mouth
5: rather heavily. There's the end of the fight.
2: Cassius Clay had won the ultimate prize in amateur boxing. He flew back to New York, where a Louisville millionaire paid for the boxer's suite at the Waldorf Towers Hotel and gave him a roll of bills, which he used to dine on steaks and buy expensive watches for his brother and parents. Later, decked out in his gold medal and Olympic blazer, Clay visited Times Square, where he paid to have a novelty newspaper printed up with the headline, Cassius Signs for Patterson Fight. Tried his first slice of cheesecake, and at Birdland, a popular jazz club, asked the bartender for a Coke with a single drop of whiskey. Everywhere he went, well-wishers praised him for his success in Rome. At Louisville's airport, hundreds of fans were there to greet him.
6: Cassius, you've heard it a good many things today already here at the airport, but congratulations. Let's take a look at that real gold medal there.
2: Cassius Marcellus Clay, Jr., was just 18, but he'd fought more than 100 amateur bouts and was ready to turn professional.
7: Dempsey, on the ropes, beating away with both hands. What, what, that laugh left, and
2: down. Professional boxing had long been among the most popular sports in America. The appeal of boxing is basic. I mean, it's man against man.
6: It's brutal, it's blood sport. It'll always be here and it will always have people watching.
5: Everybody knew who the heavyweight champion of the world was in the way that you know who the president of the United States is. And you knew his personality, what he represented, what he projected into the world. John L. Sullivan,
2: Jim Jeffries, Jack Johnson, jack dempsey joe lewis had lifted the spirits of african americans everywhere when he seized the heavyweight title in the midst of the great depression and held it for a dozen years but by the 1950s gangsters
5: ran the sport tarnishing its reputation. Boxing was kind of an anarchy in many ways. You had the official licensing organizations that ran the sport, but there was no real governance to it at all. And it was often controlled by mafia figures, people who would fix fights, people who would extract huge sums of money from their fighters and leave them not just wrecked physically, but broke. That was something that was almost inevitable for boxers, that they were going to get involved in this underworld. And that to make it in in the sport, you almost had to associate with those characters boxing
2: insiders saw that clay could be a big moneymaker in the heavyweight division Costamaro, floyd patterson's savvy cornerman offered to train him so did former heavyweight champion rocky marciano if you desire to have an excellent manager the veteran fighter archie moore cabled call me tonight Then William Faversham, an executive at a Louisville distillery, formed a syndicate of eleven prominent white businessmen with deep Kentucky roots.
0: Admiral Faversham and W. L. Long Brown, J.D.
2: Coleman. They agreed to pool their money to launch Clay's career
5: and shield him from the mob. Cassius Clay was offered the greatest contract in the history of boxing. It was a complete anomaly. There was nothing like it ever before. And in fact, the lawyer who wrote the contract said he had to go outside the industry. Mm-hmm. He went to Hollywood and looked for contracts that were given to child actors to see how they could best be protected.
0: We offered him a $10,000 bonus for signing a contract.
5: This contract ran for two years where we paid him a salary because, after all, we didn't know what he could earn. Boxers didn't get salaries, a, a monthly salary mm-hmm. for boxing? We wanted to guarantee him uh, some form of security same time, he also got 50% of uh, his purse. We're going to pay all his expenses, we're going to pay his meals, we're going to pay his rent, we're going to pay for his training, we're going to set it up so that there are tax deductions. There had never been anything like it in boxing.
2: They hoped to see a return on their investment, but as one member remarked, they were in it to do something nice for a deserving, well-behaved Louisville boy, and to save him from the jaws of the hoodlum jackals. Clay used his bonus to buy the Cadillac he had coveted since he was a boy. Though he hadn't bothered to get a driver's license. On October 29th, 1960, Clay made his professional debut at Louisville's Freedom Hall. They found a guy in the hills of West Virginia.
6: His name is Tooney Hunsaker. And Tooney Hunsaker was a sheriff and a straight-hour guy. He had the World War I campaign hat that state troopers wore in many states. And he said he would fight him. He was an inexperienced fighter against a bad fighter.
2: Clay pummeled Hunsaker for six rounds and earned a unanimous decision. But many in attendance felt that he should have knocked out the slow-moving policeman. His sponsors knew he would need a first-class trainer if he was ever going to contend for the heavyweight championship. They decided to hire Archie Moore, who taught young fighters at his camp in the hills east of San Diego. Moore preached discipline and patience. Moore also demanded that they cook, clean, chop wood, and help maintain the grounds. It was known as the salt mine. said. I'm
0: here to be a fighter, not to be the janitor. They're paying you good money. So Archie Moore said, well, you're pretty cocky. you got to know humility. If you don't have humility, you're
2: not going to be anything. Clay bristled at Moore's demands, and he was afraid Moore intended to change his style. After only a few weeks, he was sent home. William Faversham of the Louisville Sponsoring Group then called Angelo Dundee the Miami beach-based trainer Clay had met in Louisville back in 1957. Dundee was known for his calm demeanor during fights and his gift for patching up bloodied boxers. He was well-liked and at 39 had already trained six world champions. Clay, he had been told, showed real potential but was overconfident and would be difficult to teach. Dundee remembered the enthusiastic teenager and agreed to take Clay on. He told Faversham to send his fighter down after Christmas. Angelo, Faversham said, Cassius wants a fight before Christmas. On December 19, 1960, after a two-day journey by train, Cassius Clay arrived in Miami where his new trainer greeted him at the station. Dundee drove Clay to Overtown, a segregated neighborhood where black visitors who were refused service at Miami's whites-only hotels could rent a room. At the Mary Elizabeth Hotel, a hub for pimps and drug dealers, Clay was to share a dingy room with one double bed and no air conditioning with a Jamaican heavyweight. The next morning, Clay reported to Dundee's Fifth Street Gym in Miami Beach.
6: Not yet. Fifth Street Gym was just a walk-up old public boxing gym that Clay first went to when he was 18. Creakity stairs, rum-addled...
2: Drunks laying on the steps, so you had to walk over to get upstairs. The gym was home to black, white, and Cuban boxers, all toiling under the watchful eyes of a ragtag crew of regulars, one writer dubbed the Pugilistic College of Cardinals, who stood ringside and appraised Dundee's trainees. None was impressed with Clay. He keeps his hands too low, they agreed. He's off balance when he punches. He's a headhunter. The Cubans called him Niño Con boca Grande, the kid with the big mouth. Angelo Dundee also saw a flawed fighter, but one with exceptional hand and foot speed and a tireless work ethic. And he was sure he could help smooth Clay's rough edges.
5: You can't directly tell him, do this. This is a cardinal sin. Take this workout today.
6: I'll go over and tell him, gee, that wasn't too bad for the first day. Your jab wasn't as sharp as I like
5: it, but a real good jab. Well, thusly, the next day he'll be using his jab more effectively. But if I tell him your jab is terrible, then I'd be hitting the wrong kind of a note. you got to work on him psychologically.
6: Other trainers might have insisted that you fight my way, but Angelo was smart enough, genius enough, really, to just let him be and guide him rather than teach him.
2: Each day, Clay rose before dawn, laced on a pair of army Be boots, back and did his roadwork. He ran the streets and causeways of Overtown, at you times backwards, it? shadow boxing as he went. Then he jogged the four and a half miles from North Miami to Fifth Street, where while climbing the stairs to the second floor, he sometimes announced his arrival by hollering, Angelo, line up all your bums. I'm gonna knock them all out. In the gym, he'd hit the speed bag, then the heavy bag, do his calisthenics before a full length mirror and spar with other young fighters, increasing his stamina while Dundee carefully coaxed him into
3: refining his best punch, the jab. The early cash took from Ray Robinson. Ray Robinson was a dancer, Cash just like expanded the uh, notion of dancing. Typically, a boxer is taught to stay in the pocket and parry a punch. This guy would do something, it's like sacrilege in boxing. He don't lean back, then, But he leaned back. Cash just has his own style. There's
5: no other final I See that on the screen. See it, see it see that. Thanks, uh, Okay, Oh, look at that. <laughs> This is uh,
0: the style that you wouldn't have a championship of the
2: world. In his first two months in Miami, Clay fought four times. On December 27th, in his second professional fight, he defeated Herb Seiler by technical knockout in four rounds. In January 1961, Clay celebrated his 19th birthday by dispatching Tony Esperti in the third. Three weeks later, Clay needed just one round to knock out jim robinson in february clay sparred with former heavyweight champion Ingemar johansson who was in miami to promote his upcoming title fight with floyd patterson clay skipped around Johansson while peppering the swede with sharp jabs johansen failed to land a single punch and his manager cut the session short after just two rounds I'm the one who should be fighting Patterson, not you, Yusuf, Clay taunted. On April 19th, in front of more than 5,000 fans at Louisville's Freedom Hall, Clay recovered from a vicious first-round punch to his jaw to break Lamar Clark's nose and knock him out in the second round, just as he predicted he would before the fight. He has the fastest hands of any heavyweight I've seen anyplace. Clark's manager marveled, predicting that Clay was not many fights from a championship. In June, Clay reluctantly flew to Las Vegas for his next match. I'm not afraid of the fight, he told a reporter. I'm afraid of the flight. His opponent was Duke Sabato, a towering Hawaiian notorious for his dirty tactics. Clay won a unanimous decision. Before the fight, Clay had appeared on a local radio show with George Wagner, a well-known professional wrestler who called himself Gorgeous
5: George. And he would come in with a jeweled cape, and he would have one person putting the pomade in his hair, and people would boo and boo and boo, and some people would cheer and cheer and cheer. Play sees this he thinks oh
6: my god look at the attention he gets i saw him talking once about how pretty i am i cannot be beat he said look at my beautiful silver hair no man in the world
0: can beat me i'm the greatest wrestler that ever lived when i go into that ring i'm gonna annihilate
5: the bum i'm beautiful and that night when gorgeous george went to the wrestling ring all the natives were booming and the people were so mad the place was full everybody paid a high price to come in At that moment, I said, this is a good idea. Clay, he's a sponge. His genius is to know how to deploy it to his ends.
2: Back in Miami, he appeared on local television and radio, granting interviews to any writer who asked, telling one, I'm the best friend a reporter ever had. And he was beginning to attract national attention. He started to excel himself.
6: Was 19 years old in Miami Beach when he heard that Flip Schulke, a photographer for Life magazine, wanted to shoot pictures of him training. So he invited him to come watch him. He took the ordinary pictures by hey. on the beach, all that stuff. Clay said, "You want to see me train underwater?" Shulky realized when they're done that he'd been had. Cassius Clay had never trained underwater. Nobody (laughs) trains underwater. But Clay understood the promotion business to know that if you're in Life magazine, a lot of people are going to see it. So he invented this on the spot. And Shulky was amazed, Thought that it was a sign of just pure genius. And it was.
3: He
2: didn't train underwater, guys. He didn't train underwater. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Things have gone, gone to the crapper. Things have gone to the crapper. Roonies. There's no doubt about it. <clears throat> Need a break. That's what we're having. A break. Mm. That's what we're having here, guys. A little a bit of a tintillating break. Just behind the scenes of Ali. To debut to the bed. I walk the
0: streets of Japan. Till I get lost because it doesn't remind me of anything with a great.
2: So in a thin layer of Vaseline to emphasize his muscles. And wore a white satin robe and white trunks into the ring. The women says, Lan, ain't he nice and neat? Explained Clay. If the women come, the men got to follow. Ain't that so? Not everyone appreciated his cockiness. Let
6: me see you close your mouth and just keep it close. Well, you know that's uh, impossible.
0: No, no, now keep it close. You
6: know
0: that's so, impossible. Uh, I'm the greatest. I'm knocking out all the no. If you get too smart, I'll knock you out.
2: In October, Clay predicted the round in which he would defeat his next opponent, the Argentinian Alex Mitiff. Mitiff, he said, must fall in six.
0: Clay is really in fast.
3: What made Cassius special was his mastery of the crowd at, like, that young age. This guy was able to have his opponent five six inches in front of him, throw so, like, you know, a bunch of shots, clean shots, effective shots and pure wet around the guy. No one is able to do that as fluently as as seamlessly as, as him. How we did it, I have no idea. At, a, at
0: 188 pounds, play is lightning fast.
6: His speed, both his hand speed and his foot speed was just incredible if you throw a punch too far out which most novice fighters do you're too far away from your opponent you're not going to hit your opponent or if you get too close you don't have the leverage in your opponent and if you're too close you're easier to tie up so it takes a great talent you have to be at the exact distance almost to the inch a way to land the most effective punch up, hey, for that and Cassius could do
8: this he
0: did it in eight that that left eye closing rapidly and
2: He stopped Middle in the sixth round, just as he said he
0: would. And
1: the winner! I
7: Where do you rate yourself today in the heavyweight ranks? Well,
0: Jim, yeah, most people say
2: I'm crazy or hard drunk to say anything, but I would rate myself about number two now. He claimed to be embarrassed to get into the ring with the unranked Willie Besmanoff, whom he promised to knock out in round seven. When the German boxer began to wobble in the fifth, Clay slowed his attack, toying with him for two rounds, before making good again on his prediction. Cassius Clay, he understood
8: verbal warfare, so not only am I going to beat you physically, I'm going to tell you how bad I'm going to beat you. And if you're better than me, you'll shut me up. You'll make me stop talking. If not, you're going to have to listen to me talk. I'm going to add to the humiliation. It's an added layer. And if you, you can't get beyond the psychological warfare, it's unlikely
2: that you're going to win the physical warfare. Clay's professional record was now 10 and 0, his future bright, and his confidence soaring. I got the height, the reach, The weight, he declared, to beat me, you got to be greater than great. In late 1961, Cassius Clay was dividing his time between Louisville and Miami, where he continued to pursue boxing with a single-minded zeal. Still just 19, but now mainly on his own, Clay had become a familiar face in Overtown, running a tab at the famous chef restaurant and composing rhymes for the other clients at Sonny Brimston's Barbershop. When local hustlers invited him to the Sir John, or Harlem Square, where Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, and B.B. King performed, Clay joined them for the music, but drank only orange juice and never stayed long. When he ventured beyond Overtown to White Miami, where African Americans were regularly harassed by the local police, Clay kept his cool. At a department store, a white photographer looked on as Clay was scolded by a clerk for handling a shirt. The photographer was indignant, but Clay said, I don't want to make a big mess here. It's not a big deal.
7: Now it is true that men have always cried out for freedom. But in the past, these cries for freedom were, in many instances, solo voices crying for
1: freedom.
7: But the difference today is that this solo voice has been transformed into a mighty chorus singing with amazing hum. We want to be free. It is true that we have
2: Civil rights groups have been challenging segregation with nonviolent action on buses, and at lunch counters across the South. (laughs) But when asked about racial injustice, Clay said he wished to protect the white Louisville syndicate that managed his career. I don't join any groups or nothing, because it might embarrass my sponsors, he told one reporter. He knew speaking out on matters of race would only harm his chances of one day getting a title fight.
0: That
7: is another thing that you are saying to Louisville, Kentucky, and that you are saying to the nation in this movement, that the Negro is eternally through with segregation.
2: Still, the memory of Emmett Till haunted him, and his father's ever-present anger at racial oppression continued to stir his own conscience.
5: Why are we called Negroes?
0: Why are we deaf,
2: dumb, and blind? Years earlier, Clay had purchased a record called A White Man's Heaven is a Black Man's Hell, written and performed by Louis X, a minister for the Nation of Islam, which Clay listened to over and over. A White Man's Heaven is a Black Man's Hell. One day in Miami, Clay spotted a Black man in a suit, Selling copies of the newspaper, Muhammad Speaks.
0: And I was selling the papers one day on the streets. And he saw me. He said, hey, brother, why are we calling Negroes? Why are we blind, deaf, and dumb? Why everybody making progress and we lagging so far behind? I, I looked back at him. I said, hey, man, you hip to the teachers, ain't you? He said, yeah, I'm Cassius Clay." I'm going to be the next airway champion
2: of the world. A one-time pool shark from Atlanta, Abdul Rahman, known as Captain Sam, had abandoned a life of hustling when he heard the teachings of the Nation of Islam's leader, Elijah Muhammad.
0: The so-called American Negro have to be completely re-educated that he now can move out from the world feel that he is the equal of other civilized things and does not feel ashamed to be called
3: a black man.
2: Captain Sam encouraged Clay to attend meetings at Temple No. 29, a vacant storefront that had been turned into a mosque. The first time I felt truly spiritual in my life was when I walked into the Muslim temple in Miami, Clay later recalled. A man named brother John was speaking and I could reach out and touch what he was saying. God was black, preached the minister. There was no chance of reconciliation with white people who had deliberately stolen the black man's identity. Only by embracing Allah would black people overcome white cruelty.
7: Elijah Muhammad presented Islam as this alternative to Christianity, the Black man's religion. And that was a selling point that Elijah Muhammad used, and it was pretty effective.
4: He's stepping into an alternate reality where up is down and down is up, and Black is sacred and Black is valuable. You know, your mind is blown. Something like that definitely has enormous transformative power.
7: Especially for the lower income and lesser educated
2: African-Americans who he was targeting at that time. Elijah Muhammad was born Elijah Poole, the son of a Baptist preacher in rural Georgia in 1897. When Poole was 14, a white mob lynched his friend, Albert Hamilton, who was accused of assaulting a white woman. The angry crowd had dragged Hamilton from a jail cell, hung him from a tree and shot him more than 300 times. Poole resolved that he would, he said, find a way to avenge him and my people. In 1923, Poole moved to Detroit, where he fell under the sway of a self-styled messiah named W.D. Farad. A charismatic orator, Farad had invented an elaborate history and theology for black people, rooted in the belief that they were the Earth's original inhabitants ruling for trillions of years under the banner of Islam until they were undermined by a race of white devils who would one day face a brutal end at the hand of Allah. He preached black separatism, self-determination, and clean living, and sometimes assigned converts new surnames to replace their slave names. Farag called his group the Lost Found Nation of Islam, who, his latest convert, became Elijah Muhammad. There was a tradition of those kinds of groups. There was a more
7: science temple of, of Nobujiwali. There was the Black Hebrew organization of this guy named Black Zarah. There was Marcus Garvey's, United Negro Improvement Association. And the Nation of Islam was just one of them. They call Black Christianity the white man's religion. And Christianity was... Deeply rooted in black america and anyone who looked at themselves as an enemy to that
2: tradition was seen as someone who was almost demonic and there was that kind of uh, fear about them when farad mysteriously vanished in 1934 elijah muhammad took control called himself the messenger of allah and relocated to chicago he went to prison rather than register for the draft during the second world war continued to preach separation of the races, and spoke of the mother plane, a wheel-shaped spacecraft he claimed was hovering miles above the earth, waiting to annihilate the white devils on Judgment Day. Though Elijah Muhammad borrowed abundantly from Muslim teachings, his message of separatism and claim to be a prophet diverged sharply from traditional Islam, a religion founded in the 8th century that by 1950 had more than 400 million followers around the world.
8: The nation of Islam was an American hybrid. It used certain tenets of Islam, but uh, other tenets were made up by them or improvised. They tried to Americanize it to the point where it, it was not authentic. Elijah was not the Prophet Muhammad. Laj Mohammed, his motto was do for self. Black people need to do for themselves. They need to build for themselves. They need to start their own businesses. You need to control your own communities. Let's quit begging
0: white people for jobs. Let's make jobs for ourselves. We have to be self-independent. Instead of being in some welfare line or employment looking for a job, we're trying to make jobs ourselves to try to keep the
2: money in our neighborhood in the neighborhood to enrich the neighborhood. Elijah Muhammad purchased a farm in Michigan and opened a clothing store, bakery, and restaurant in Chicago, serving mostly black customers.
0: We hate ourselves That's right. because of the teaching and the training of our slave masters.
8: You need to move away from these white people. You don't want to integrate with these white people. You want to move away from them. Your
0: slave master, and all is true, are none other than the devil.
4: He was generally regarded by members of that movement as the messenger of Allah or God. He was highly revered, and they answered to his dictates. This is an affirmation of black humanity and black dignity as individuals and as a collective here's hope in the form of a tangible program that you can follow
0: that will get you there i said get out of that slavery teaching that's the white man's teaching to keep you blind deaf and dumb to the knowledge of
5: The nation of Islam had a presence in American prisons and you can encounter a guy who was not very educated, didn't do very well in school, maybe even dropped out, went to prison and joined the nation of Islam, comes out of prison. And now you have to have a dictionary to have a conversation with him. Mastery of standard English now is no longer indexed to any kind of Uncle Tomism, but now is equated with what it means to be a dignified black man. This man saved thousands and thousands
0: of people from, from the gutter. and took many out of the gutter. Many drug addicts cleaned up on his teachings. So you can't do nothing. A marvel of a man can do that.
2: The nation appealed at first mostly to poor African-Americans. But by the late 1950s, Elijah Muhammad's message of black empowerment began reaching some members of the black middle class frustrated with the slow pace of change. The Nation of Islam was
6: such a fringe group that very few, certainly white Americans, had ever heard of it. Even the clothes they wear. In 1959, Mike Wallace did a big documentary on it, The Hate That Hate Produced. These homegrown Negro American Muslims are the most
7: powerful of the black supremacist groups. They have their own parochial schools where Muslim children are taught to hate the white man. This documentary
4: was designed to be provocative and frightening, actually, to your
7: average white viewer.
0: I thought the white man was being the greatest troublemaker on earth.
7: The white man has been put on trial for his sins against the black man. He has been found guilty. The sentence is death.
0: Guilty as God.
4: Oh my god, this is what. These angry black people are planning to do. This is a moment of, of real panic for a lot of white people when this, this documentary airs. And I think it was it was meant to be that.
2: In Miami, Cassius Clay quietly continued to attend meetings at Temple Number Twenty Nine.
5: He becomes attracted to its message of pride, of not depending on the beneficence and favors of whites and white politics. And it's married to a sense of religion, and a rhetoric of no more slave name, a new name. And he gets caught up, and the message, which was so ironic because he's, he's he's surrounded by white people a lot, of
8: of separatism. You basically see yourself as having removed yourself from the outside world, even though you're interacting with it. You have basically removed yourself from it. That's appealing, but it's also dangerous. The reason why it was so appealing is because cults give you this vision of utopia. This vision of having this community of people that you would be around, this vision that we were all marching forward for this goal of of liberating black people and you had this God Allah and you saw how black women were being respected and how black men were looked up to. It seemed like a dream. That's what cults do to people. They offer you a kind of dream.
2: That's right. That's right, isn't doubt about us? Muhammad Ali are mm. we living
3: in it's
0: something we don't know. It's something we can't see Simulation, is it real? Fascinating in the street Hollow punks and killer Gibson and swagger bass Now here we go, it's in your...